This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Hi, podcast listeners. For the next few weeks, we'll be running a survey from our advertising team. We want to make sure the ads on the show actually match our audience interests, and we can't do that unless you tell us about yourself. So please visit sciencemag.org slash podcast survey and click a few boxes for us. I've been through the survey. It's quick and painless. There's even a chance to win a gift card. So please go to sciencemag.org slash podcast survey and tell us a little bit about yourself. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 3rd, 2019. I'm Sarah Kresge. On this week's show, Michael Munson will talk with me about a smartphone app that scans the photos on your phone to look for eye disease in children. And I talk with Todd Roberts about incepting memories into birds. This is in order to better understand how they learn from example. Now we have Michael Munson. He's an undergraduate at Baylor University in Texas. For his science advances paper, Michael worked with his advisor, Brian Shaw, on a smartphone app that scans photos of kids for a kind of eye disease. Hi, Michael. Hi, how are you? Good. So tell us about the eye conditions that this app is designed to look for. The app is designed to detect eye diseases like retinoblastoma, Coats disease, cataracts, which are a little more severe. Um, they can result in blindness, but mm-hmm. uh, the app has also been shown to detect things like hyperopia or myopia, which is just stuff like farsightedness or nearsightedness. What it's looking for is this state called white pupillary reflex or leukocoria. How does it show up in a photo? If you take a photo of people, sometimes you'll notice that their pupils are red. In the same vein, uh, leukocoria is just when the pupil is white. Why does the eye reflect white when leukocoria is happening? In a healthy physiological eye, the red reflection is just due to the retina because, you know, the retina has many blood vessels. And so when light hits the back, it's the retina, red reflects back. In a disease like retinoblastoma, well, you have cells proliferating throughout the retina of the eye. White is a reflection of all colors. Um, and so oftentimes uh, an eye with retinoblastoma um, can exhibit this leukocoria. So what do we get from being able to detect this early? Why is it a good thing to see it right away? Uh, especially in cases like retinoblastoma, which is cancer of the retina, it is especially important to catch not only retinoblastoma, but all cancers early because a cancer can metastasize. In the case of retinoblastoma, the cancer can travel down the optic nerve and eventually reach your brain. And so, of course, the earlier the detection, the better. And the same goes for other diseases as well, such as coast disease or cataracts. How do doctors normally look for the white pupillary reflex? During like a standard pediatrician exam, they'll use this tool called an ophthalmoscope, which pretty much just shines a light into the pupil of children. They look for whether or not the light reflected is red or um, if it's leukocoric, like a, like a more whitish hue. How does the app look at the photos to try to find this? Because, you know, our eyes don't always show red. Sometimes they just look like normal eyes. Our app is uh, really this thing called a convolutional neural network. 
And uh, a convolutional neural network is pretty much just a classification of neural networks that is best used to analyze things that uh, have like a graphic, graphical data to them. So something like a photo. And so there are neurons that are assigned to different fields on the photograph. And eventually these neurons work together to make up a face. Once these neurons find a face, they go through the same methodologies, find the eye. Uh, once they verify that it's the eye, they use this thing called the RGB color space. So like red, green, blue. Depending on certain metrics, the neuron will then ding the field as leukoporic or not leukoporic. Mm-hmm. And when you make a, something like this, that's a clinical tool or test. You have to think about how many false positives you're going to get how likely it is to find something that's pretty rare. And that's, you know, an important part of the research that you did here. Can you describe to us those key statistical parameters that we should care about when talking about a clinical tool or test, sensitivity, specificity, and accuracy? Yeah, so sensitivity is called the true positive rate. So what that is, uh, it's the amount of true positive photos. So photos that do exhibit disease and the app detects divided by the total number of positive photos. So mm-hmm. those are photos that contain children with diseased eyes, mm-hmm. whether or not the app detects them or not. Specificity, on the other hand, is one minus the false positive rate. False positive rate, it's just the number of photos that the app claims shows a diseased eye when the eye isn't diseased over the number of photos that aren't really diseased, so just healthy eyes. So oftentimes that ought to be low, hopefully. So you just subtract one from that, then you get the specificity. Mm-hmm. Accuracy, I like to think about it like the sensitivity plus the specificity combined. So it gives you like a nice overall mm-hmm. um, average of the efficacy of your detection tool. Mm-hmm. So the accuracy uh, is defined as you know the true positives plus the true negatives. So the good things about your detection tool over just the total number of photos. So over true positives, plus true negatives, plus false positives, and the false negatives. Mm -hmm. What kinds of stats, what values did you get for this app when you tested it out on a batch of photos of kids with and without eye disease? First thing that we found uh, was that, so per photograph, the true positive rate was around 31%, whereas the specificity was like Mm 99.3%. So is that good or bad? True positive rate of 30% is, it's kind of subjective because a major problem in building detection tools like this is if you want to try to keep specificity high, you have to sacrifice some of the network's sensitivity Mm -hmm. capabilities. And so uh, with a a 30% sensitivity and 99.3% specificity, we think it's decent just because we really want to avoid false positives and not have to cause any sort of unnecessary trauma for those using the application. And we really hinge upon the fact that children with eye disease oftentimes represent a high frequency of leukocoria. Um, And so with a sensitivity of only 30% per photograph, eventually with a high enough number of leukocoric photos, the app will inform the parent that their child, their child may have this disease. And then the next step would be to go to the doctor and the pediatrician and get it confirmed. Right. Yes, exactly. We uh, really do want to um, verify that that this app is not a diagnostic tool at all. It really is just a detection tool used for parents uh, to easily sift through their library of photographs so that they can take their child to the physician for a more accurate exam. What spurred on this project? How did it get started? Back in like 2014, my professor, uh, Dr. Brian Shaw, uh, as he was looking through baby photographs that um, him and his wife have taken of his son, he just realized that a certain eye was always reflecting a white pupil while the other always reflected a red pupil. 
And I think, you know, just as a scientific investigator, uh, it kind of piqued his curiosity. And so he took his son to the physician and the physician had said, yeah, uh, your son does have retinoblastoma. And this was really, of course, devastating for him, uh, especially because he had his son undergo a standard pediatric exam when the son was born. The retinoblastoma was never caught. And so this resulted in his son losing his eye. Yeah. It kind of inspired this project. This eye disease is often actually caught by a parent or a friend of the family noticing it in a kid or a photo because the pediatrician only does this, you know, once a year, sometimes less than once a year if the kid is kind of squirmy. How much earlier could this app detect eye disease? In our test set, so the children that did have a disease, for 18 of the 20 patients, we detected 16 before the physician had. And we did this on average of 1.3 years. Wow. Which, yeah, which can, you know, yield great things uh, in terms of early detection. And how did you end up working on it? In my case, when I first came to Baylor, I had never done any sort of research before. I was really looking for um, research that was medically relevant based off a experience I had in high school. And uh, I had found Dr. Shaw through the Baylor website. I was just perusing through looking for different projects. And I read through his paper on this eye detection tool and I became interested. So I just knocked on his door and talked to him about what I thought of his paper and how I'd like to contribute. Uh, And just ever since then, I kind of fell in love with the work and devoted as much time as possible. Okay. Well, what are you going to do next? Are you going to continue to work on this app? Now that I'm a senior in college, I'm planning on going to get my master's either in computer science or statistics, just because I really want to uh, further solidify my technical skills um, before going into medical research. That could certainly be complemented with more research um, with this application. Is this app already available? Is it out there already? The app is out there. It's available uh, both for iPhones and Androids and Google phones, just on really any smartphone, really. It's called the White Eye Detector. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Michael. Thank you so much. Michael Munson is an undergraduate at Baylor University in Texas. You can find a link to his science advances paper at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Todd Roberts about incepting memories into birds. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Mova Globes. Mova Globes turn all on their own with or without a base in any setting with ambient lighting. No batteries needed and no sloppy cords to detract from your enjoyment. Instead, hidden magnets provide the movement. With over 40 designs, including world maps, outer space maps, and famous artwork, there's really something for everyone. The Outer Space Collection even features graphics provided by NASA and JPL, complete with planets, moons, asteroids, and constellation designs. It's a great gift for the person who has everything, the science lover in your family, or the math lover. Or pair it with your own home decor as a conversation starter. I especially want to talk about the antique terrestrial map that they're offering. This vintage map is from 1790 and shows the three voyages of Captain James Cook. Note, there is no Antarctica on this globe because James Cook didn't believe it existed. For their famous artwork globes, they have the likes of Van Gogh and Monet. Their artwork is carefully recreated to transform their flat paintings into a three-dimensional piece of art. And of course, the Mars globe. This recreation presents a direct look at each crater, along with multiple layers of red, brown, and tan that make up its surface. The graphics are satellite images taken by NASA, giving it a level of realism you won't find with other interpretations. Visit 
moveaglobes.com slash science mag and use the code science mag for 10% off your purchase. That's M-O-V-A globes.com slash science mag and use the code science mag for 10% off your purchase. This week's episode is also brought to you by KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that make learning about STEAM fun. With a KiwiCo subscription, each month, the kid in your life will receive a fun, engaging new project, which will help develop their creativity and confidence. The projects are designed to spark tinkering and learning in kids of all ages. Every crate includes all the supplies needed for that month's project detailed, easy-to-follow instructions, and an educational magazine to learn even more about that crate's theme. These hands-on projects are designed to empower tomorrow's makers, and they make the perfect gift for every young explorer, engineer, and artist. KiwiCo has seven lines of projects for different age groups, like the Kiwi Crate for ages 5 to 8, the Eureka Crate for ages 14 and up, and the brand new Panda Crate for newborns and babies. KiwiCo is offering Science Podcast listeners the chance to get their first month for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids of all ages, visit kiwico.com slash science mag. That's kiwico.com slash science mag. We all learn by example, listening to a new song, watching a new dance, practicing it on our own until it's perfect. It might even seem like this is the easiest way to learn, but if you think about it, the steps our brain and our body go through, this type of learning is actually a very complex process. This week in science, Todd Roberts and colleagues took a close look at learning by example in zebra finches. These are birds that learn songs from other birds. And the researchers were able to interfere with this learning process in a very specific way and change their songs from something like this something like this. Hi, Todd. Hi. Can you break this process down into kind of the component parts, like how you think about learning by example? Take, for example, you want to learn how to play the piano. And so you go and learn from a person that's much more experienced at playing the piano. You watch them play, they give you instruction, and then you use that experience in order to guide slow changes in your behavior. And so the first step is identifying a social model and forming the memories necessary to guide changes in your own behavior. The second step is then to practice these new behaviors and try to calculate what you're doing wrong on a moment-by-moment basis and use these errors in your performances to then guide iterative changes in how you're behaving in the future. So what kind of questions were you trying to answer about this process of learning by example? Essentially, we were trying to understand what the brain circuits are that underlie our ability to form memories of the social models that we're trying to copy. And we don't just do this. This is not just something that humans do. Also, we see this in animals. And in this case, you looked at zebra finches, birds that learn songs from each other. What kind of behaviors do you see that show that they're learning from each other? Well, it's evident that birds learn from each other because a young songbird, and in our case, we're studying zebra finches, will form almost a perfect copy of his father's song during development. And so this happens during an early stage of development when the birds are within the first three months of life. And 
we see that they first form a memory of their father's song, and then they practice their song over and over and over again until eventually they get a good copy of their father's song. In fact, they need to practice that song upwards of 100,000 times during development in order to get it right. Wow. Let's talk about your experimental intervention then. What we really wanted to tackle in this research was to identify the elemental circuits in the brain that allow birds to encode memories of a song model. We already had some evidence that motor circuits, the circuits that are involved in producing song, are also engaged in the early aspects of learning when birds are first listening to their father Mm -hmm. uh, sing. What we needed was an experimental approach that would allow us to see whether or not these circuits by themselves were sufficient for a young bird to encode a memory. And so this is a complicated type of task. And so what we did was turn to optogenetics so that we could try to manipulate the timing of activity in these circuits in young birds in the absence of any social experience when they don't have a tutor to learn from. When you say optogenetics, just briefly, this is the ability to kind of use pulses of light to control the activity of cells, you know, basically cause them to to fire or not fire in the brain. That's right. And specifically, we are looking at one pathway in the brain that connects auditory regions to motor regions. So listening to doing. That's right. That's right. This is basically inserting a memory in the brain of a bird. That's right. To test whether or not this circuit was involved, we wanted to see whether or not we can implant false memories in the brain of young birds. So you didn't play them a song. Instead, you orchestrated the firing of neurons in a specific pattern. That's right. We would play light pulses into the brain that had specific temporal patterns. We either played 50 millisecond pulses of light or 300 millisecond pulses of light. Then we just let them grow up and see if they learned anything from these light pulses. Remarkably, what we saw is that it shaped the duration of their song syllables. So a normal zebra finch has song syllables that it repeats over and over again. So they'll sing, say, three to seven song syllables, and they will repeat those syllables in a very stereotyped way. And each one of those syllables on average is about 100 milliseconds long. So they're quite short. And what you taught the birds with the the light was either 50 milliseconds or 300 milliseconds. That's right. And so what we found is if we play 50 millisecond pulses of light when they're young, as adults, they sing song syllables that cluster close to 50 milliseconds in duration. So significantly shorter than what you see in normal zebra finch song. And if we play back 300 millisecond pulses of light to young birds, that they end up with songs that have song syllables that are much longer. And so we can get them to shift significantly from the duration of their syllables. And what if you take a bird that's been trained this way with light, and then you introduce them to a teacher, to a tutor bird? Right. So we did that experiment. And what we found was that if we optically manipulate this one set of synapses in the brain that are connecting the auditory system to the motor system, it could override the tutoring experience that they get from a normal bird. Okay. Let me just go through that one more time real quick. So if the tutor sings them a song, but they've been optogenetically trained, 
they don't learn the new song. They stick with what they know from the light pulses. That's right. This really was designed to test whether or not circuits that were in the auditory system where the bird might be processing auditory information from the tutor that it's listening to were going to be sufficient to form a memory that the bird could then use to guide uh, subsequent learning, or whether or not this pathway connecting the auditory system to the motor system would be enough to override learning from these social experiences. And that's what we found, is that this circuit from the auditory system to the motor system plays a privileged role in carrying information that the bird then learns from or uses to guide its song learning. So your focus in this was on the timing of the notes in the bird song, so how their their duration. Could you also do something similar with the pitch or, I don't know, all the different aspects of what makes a song a song? Yeah, so that's something that we're very curious about. And you're absolutely right. What we did in this study is really focus on just the timing of elements in the bird song. We had some evidence based on previous literature that the neurons in this pathway seem to code for the onsets and offsets of the syllables. And so we hypothesized that the circuit might be involved in providing information about the timing of song syllables. But it's only one aspect of what the birds need to learn in order to have a full song or the ability to fully copy uh, their tutor song. So they need to understand or be able to copy the spectral content of their tutor song. They need to under- be able to copy the sequences in the song. So if a bird sings five syllables, it has to know how to put those syllables in the right order. We still are unsure of what circuits are carrying that type of information in the brain and something that we're actively investigating. But we hope that the approaches that we've used in this study using very precise manipulations of neural circuits can also be harnessed to try to answer those questions. Do you see this not only as a model for those other circuits and finding them in birds, but for learning in other animals like people? Well, I think we're probably still a far long way off from doing these types of manipulations in people and and teaching people um, uh, (laughs) new languages, for example. So no, (laughs) I I, I think that, uh, that we still have a long way to go. But what we think is important here is that we're starting for the first time to understand how these types of memories are encoded in the brain and the circuits that are involved in these types of memories. And mm-hmm. the big picture is, is that for a long time, people have considered these types of memories to be encoded primarily in auditory circuits in the brain. And mm-hmm. what our study clearly shows is that auditory information gets transformed into motor coordinates or gets relayed into motor structures in the brain to the same structures that are involved in ultimately producing that behavior, even early in life when they're first learning from the social model. And so it really suggests that these distinctions between sensory circuits and motor circuits are not as clear as people have previously thought. Oh, very interesting. Okay, thank you so much, Todd. You're very welcome. It was great talking with you. Todd Roberts is an assistant professor in the Department of Neurosciences and in the Peter O'Donnell Brain Institute at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. You can find a link to his paper at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, 
write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, many other places, or you can find us on the science website at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. There, you will also find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Special thanks to Joel Goldberg and Megan Cantwell for their ears. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.